Now, Dr. Bruce Conklin and his colleagues at San Francisco's Gladstone Institutes are revealing more about the disturbing effects of COVID-19 on the human heart. Along with researchers Melanie Ott and Todd McDevitt, the team was able to actually image that damage. They say the virus's prime target is on the left, long strands of muscle fiber that allow the heart to beat. In the image on the right, some of those same muscle strands are essentially chopped into pieces by the virus. Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Kate. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow scientists as well as non-scientist friends to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. In this episode, we continue our COVID-19 updates, this time looking at SARS-CoV-2 infection in heart cells and the damage that it can cause to these cell types. Our discussion centers around an article recently published in the journal Science Translational Medicine, and it's titled SARS-CoV-2 Infection of Human iPSC-Derived Cardiac Cells Reflects Cytopathic Features in Hearts of Patients with COVID-19. Joining me for today's episode and helping us discuss are three of the co-authors on this paper, Juan Perez Bermejo. Yeah, I'm Juan Perez Bermejo, and I am a scientist at Gladstone Institute. And well, before working on COVID, I worked on using stem cells to understand heart disease and especially the genetics of heart disease. Sarah King. Hi, my name is Sarah King. I'm an engineer by training, though now a scientist at Gladstone Institute. And prior to working on uh, COVID, I studied stem cells and how to create better uh, heart tissue. And Sarah Rockwood. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a research associate at Gladstone, and I work very closely with the other Sarah in using stem cells to derive better models and hopefully sources of therapy for cardiac tissue. And joining us and making sure we stay on point will be our non-scientist expert human, Megan Stevens. Hi, I'm Megan. I'm an admin at UCSF and I am not at all a scientist, so I'm doing my best to learn here. And thanks guys, let's get started. Hi guys, thanks for joining me today. Uh, So the focus of today's episode is SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, and its ability to infect and cause damage to heart cells. So Juan, Sarah, and Sarah, would one of you like to talk about why you guys were interested in studying SARS-CoV-2 in heart cells? Um, And what was some of the evidence you had that the virus could cause damage to the heart? Well, I can take the first one. So I guess this all goes back to February 2020, maybe March 2020, when the first reports were on on the different like signs and symptoms and outcomes of COVID-19 patients were coming out, being published from China mostly. And we saw that there was a number of studies that made special emphasis on some patients developing heart disease. Um, Heart disease during the course of COVID-19 or shortly after having developed COVID-19. Um, we were sitting in our houses. We didn't have much to do. We were on full lockdown. We couldn't go to lab. We couldn't do anything other than just writing things that we have already done. And because we are heart scientists, we, you know, that caught our attention and we thought maybe we can use our stem cells to study what's going on here. I can add on to that a little bit. So, um, 
some of the initial signs that we saw in particular from patients in Wuhan uh, were a number of papers saying that when these patients were in the hospital or in the intensive care units and getting routine blood draws or other uh, hospital labs, uh, they were showing signs in their blood of dying heart cells. Uh, and it was symptoms like this that really kind of piqued our interest and uh, made us wonder what exactly is going on that would enable a virus that sh should be infecting, you know, the lungs and affecting, you know, that system to have effects all the way over to the heart. And I'll add on a little bit too. Um, one of the, I mean, the virus is known to have a lot of impacts on the body overall, definitely in the lung, as Sarah mentioned, um, leading to damage there that can lead to respiratory distress, like the ARDS that was commonly seen in patients. And then the immune response can be hyperactivated and that in of itself can lead to a lot of damage throughout the body. So a big question early on was if there's an impact on the heart, is this a indirect impact from lung damage or from the immune system, or is it a direct impact from the virus infecting the heart tissue um, directly. So that is a question that we were also very interested in. So uh, I don't know how, um, I know you guys mostly are studying the heart. Do you know of any other viruses that uh, have this type of systemic response where it's causing damage to the heart? I mean, SARS-CoV-2 infects a lot of different cell types, right? It infects also you know, the intestinal cells and uh, a whole bunch of different, you know, parts of the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, on the on the topic of other viruses that can do similar things, there's definitely a, a, a number of viruses that are known to have um, effects in the heart. In particular, there's this one called Coxsackie, I guess, that it's known to actually directly infect cells in the heart. And there's also more mundane, you would think, um, or you, you could say virus like the flu that are known to have, um, some heart, like some patients that have a really bad flu, they end up developing some heart, um, inflammation or even long-term heart disease from that, although that's not that common. And what we were seeing is that for COVID-19, it was way more common than for other, you know, like regular viruses, like, or seasonal viruses, like you would think. And that you would think. And the other thing I, I will add, and that was important, very important for us, is that we were scraping the literature and reading old papers, and we saw that for patients that had had um, SARS-1, which is like you know the causing virus and the like previous virus um, to this one that caused COVID-19, we saw that there were reports that some patients actually had developed heart disease after that. So. Yeah, there was a strong hint that viruses could do that. The big question, and that's something that Sarah hinted at earlier, is that um, the big question was how can SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, how can it get to the heart? And at the beginning, that was something that most people didn't know or most people highly doubted, also because there was no evidence that the virus could even get to the blood, for example. People were desperate for any sort of answers about, you know, how to help patients who are sick and dying of this disease. Um, and so our motivation for studying the heart is if we have these mysterious effects on the heart, which is a very sensitive organ that doesn't regenerate or grow back after it's been hurt, 
um, what can we do to understand and therefore help arm uh, doctors and people developing drugs uh, in order to prevent some of this damage that might lead to long-term um, you know, heart failure? So I was really surprised reading the news articles that Robin shared with me and then abstract the paper um, to hear that so much damage could be caused to the heart because all I hear on the news is about lung damage um, and, you know, random other side effects that seem to be sporadic amongst other people. So it sounds like you guys knew about or were hearing about this heart damage back in February, March 2020. Were you hearing that on news media and I'm just missing it? Were you hearing that from other scientists? Actually, this is a super interesting question uh, because a lot of it has to do with the progression of our understanding and the progression of the disease over the last year. Um, at the beginning, you know, as you were saying, there, there really wasn't a lot of uh, news media or coverage of the effects on the heart. And that was, you know, we suppose for the simple reason that, you know, the heart effects aren't really what were killing people. It was the acute respiratory distress. It was the pneumonia um, or the, you know, the very strong inflammatory response where the immune system kicks into overdrive uh, and they suffer, you know, kind of damage all throughout their body as a result of that. However, as time went on, and as reports like um, studies of athletes, for example, who are having, uh, who had been sick with COVID, recovered, but were having a long-term shortness of breath, you know, difficulty with exertion, and not being able to perform anymore, uh, there was a, a number of articles about that over the summer. Uh, you know, people began sort of looking into this other facet, wondering if, you know, as if we get better from the disease, do we carry some of these scars with us in places that we don't think about, like the heart? All I wanted to add is that I, as far as I remember, and probably Sarah and Sarah will remember as well, the first, the first big piece of news on this sort of like COVID affects the heart or whatever it was, was was when a couple of teams, I think, they pulled out of the Super PAC or whatever that is called, like a college league for American football. And it was not on the basis of people having COVID, but of some athletes that had had COVID. And because of that, they were having abnormal heart. And, you know, I think it was a normal heart echo, an MRI. And the doctors were like, you know, suggesting and advising that they should not play. And they stopped on the basis of that, not on the basis of people actually having currently um, COVID or any sort of like lung problems. I remember at the very beginning, we saw a couple of charts from patients who had had COVID, and uh, when you know Bruce was looking at them, he was saying that these people look like they've had a heart attack. They look like they've had an infarct. You know, the numbers that we're seeing here aren't something that would be explainable by, you know, uh, without you know high levels of of, of damage to the heart. Uh, it was really intriguing when we first saw it and very worrying. Yeah, I think the implications for long-term effects of having this virus are still not fully realized yet. And um, in theory, by the time this episode comes out, uh, adults in the United States will have access to the vaccine. Um, that it's important to note that getting the virus is not great and can have a lot of long-term effects. So... Um, it's important for everybody to get vaccinated to protect yourselves and protect everybody else as well. 
It made us really worry about the countries who were adopting herd immunity as an approach. Yeah. I was also surprised when reading about this that there was mention that this heart damage could explain people's shortness of breath and these long-term breathing effects and fatigue. I just always assumed that that had to do with lung damage. So how does heart damage affect breathing? The the very uh, maybe naive answer from the non-cardiac scientists would be that your heart is what delivers oxygen to your body. So if your heart is damaged, it's not delivering oxygen through your body as well as it could. Right. That is a very good answer. And I, I guess it also goes into when you say heart disease, there are many different kinds of heart disease. But the one we are seeing in, in COVID patients or that it's reported on people that have had COVID or, you know, they have acute cases of COVID is, um, it's called cardiomyopathy and in particular dilated cardiomyopathy. And it's one in which the muscle of the heart gets really weak. So it gets really bad at pumping. It's not that it stops or anything like that, but it's more like it's getting weak and it's getting really inefficient at pumping, um, blood, which is why the, the people that suffer from this are constantly tired. But I think, you know, we, we should not just fall into the fallacy of thinking that this is just the one thing that causes the shortness of breath. It's obviously patients have a compound of different symptoms and different, you know, small pathologies um, that are caused by COVID or that they have pre-existing and that makes them have this shortness of breath and other, other symptoms. I just wanted to add that the one thing is that the heart does not heal itself, right? Which is what makes it one of the hotspots for the concerns of doctors and scientists like ourselves in terms of like, how long is this going to last, right? The heart does not heal itself normally. Um, so the damage that's done, it can remain or it can only get worse. It can not get better in general. So, um, I will admit that I definitely had to refresh my memory about heart biology and heart cells and uh, how um, the heart works. And maybe before we get into some of the bigger details of the paper, um, we can talk about the different types of heart cells and maybe zoom in on the cells that you guys studied in your paper. So um, in the paper, you guys look at three different cardiac cell types, cardiomyocytes, cardiofibroblasts, and endothelial cells. Um, and so you were looking at which of the three types, if any, were um, able to be infected by SARS-CoV-2. Uh, before we go into the virology, can one of you describe what these three different cardi cardiac cells are and kind of what they do in a healthy heart? Um, kind of what their functions are? So we chose these three cell types because they're all really important to different functions in the heart and they're um, you know, also all quite distinct. So cardiomyocytes are probably the most well-known cell type in the heart. Those are the cells that actually contract. So if you look at a cardiomyocyte under a microscope, you can see it you know, fully contracting and then expanding. And it's the um, you know, contractile machinery within the cells. Those are the cells that are actually causing your entire heart to beat. Um, so those are the cardiomyocytes, the primary cell type of the heart. But these cells don't actually make up 
most of the heart by cell number. They make up most of the heart by volume, but there are a lot of other different types of cells that are in the heart as well and that are really important to the function. So cardiac fibroblasts are another one, and these are cells that do not have the same kind of contractile machinery at all. They're usually more important for structural support, so they may um, release a lot of different types of proteins in the surrounding. It's called the extracellular matrix, so this is the parts that are outside of cells. They're not inside the cells, but they're kind of outside, and they create almost like a scaffold that enable the cells to stay in place and, and hold their structure. And they also release a lot of other signals that help keep the um, cells in a happy homeostasis, it's called homeostasis, a happy state. Um, so they're really important for kind of maintaining the integrity of the whole organ. And then the endothelial cells are important for a lot of the uh, interaction with the blood system, which is how the oxygen it gets delivered to all the cells in the body, including the heart. And the heart uses a lot, um, a lot of oxygen and a lot of energy. And endothelial cells are um, pretty important for lining the, the vasculature and interacting with these other parts of the body. So they're pretty distinct functions, but they're all working together within the heart at the same time. I'm still confused. <laughs> I think... <laughs> Maybe we could summarize, because I think that was a really good explanation, but maybe um, like cardiomyocytes are the ones that do the beating <laughs> that make your heart pump blood. Um, the cardiac fibroblasts are like structure. They make the heart look like the heart. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> At a high level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, they, helper cells maybe is a good word for them. Yeah, that's... Um, then the endothelial cells are like the uh, barrier, how things are exchanged uh, with the blood. But <laughs> um. I would, I would, I mean, if you want to go by analogy, if you think of any sort of pump, there are a few important parts to it. There's the pipe that carries whatever you're pumping in and out of the pump, which would be our endothelial cells, which are from the blood vessels. There is the pump itself, the component that actually pushes uh, what you're pumping through it, which are the cardiomyocytes. They are the ones that contract and actually push the blood around your body. And then there is the, the housing, the chassis, um, which come from the cardiac fibroblasts. They make up the structure and the um, skeleton uh, in which everything else resides. That, that worked well. Um, I like both of those. So Sarah, Sarah, and Juan, in your paper, all of the cells that you guys were actually testing, so you were testing all three cell types, but you were actually using um, something called human iPSC-derived cardiac cells can, uh, or uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. Can one of you describe what these types of cells are, um, how you generate these special cells um, and, and maybe why you used um, these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells? IBS cells, they are essentially stem cells. That is what they are. And what that means is that they are cells that they can make every other cell type in the body, which is incredibly useful. And when people think about stem cells, they think about regeneration and making organs and you know, rebuilding things. 
Um, the one thing that makes an IPS cell an IPS cell and not every or any other type of stem cell, they are special in that they actually come from the skin of a living person. Um, they are they are made, they are induced from the skin of a living person. We take skin cells from an adult and we make them go back in time and make a stem cell out of them. And for us, this is an incredibly useful tool because as people that study the heart, we only have two options. Either we study the heart of animals, which on the one side, it's not human, so they are quite different from us in some things. And for example, mice are, are known to not get infected by COVID. So for example, you wouldn't be able to study things in, in mouse heart. Um, and second, if you wanted to get human heart, you only have one option, which is getting it from biopsies, from live people, which is definitely a painful procedure and most people would not agree to it, or taking from post-mortem tissue from dead people. Um, but what stem cells allow us to do as heart scientists and people that care about the heart is that we can make an, essentially an infinite amount of heart tissue that then we can use to study disease. And in our case, all we did was to mix them with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and let it happen and see whether they could be infected. Maybe, Sarah, um, you can also explain, you know, how do you go from a stem cell to a heart cell? And how do you get the different types of heart cells? Sure. So when an embryonic stem cell is made in the body, it's able to go on and produce any of the various types of organs, bones, tissues, everything that makes up a person. IPSCs are very similar in that way and can generate some many or uh, pretty much all of the same types of um, uh, cells as a result. So what we do is we follow what happens in a developing embryo. So we've studied, you know, the chemicals and proteins and genes that are used in order to turn uh, a young embryo into a person. It's in particular what is used to generate each different particular type of organ. And we use those same ones and apply them to our iPSCs. And so by borrowing the concepts and the biology of, you know, uh, human development, we're able to, to take that and isolate it down to just a particular organ system. So for cardiac cells, we can make cardiomyocytes um, using one set of chemicals. We can make cardiac fibroblasts using another and endothelial cells using a third. There are different specialized cocktails of uh, proteins and, and chemicals that we use in order to um, trick them into going down the same sort of behavior as they would in a, in, a, in a young embryo. So you guys were studying these three different cell types, the cardiomyocytes or the beating ones, the cardiofibroblasts, that's cardio, cardiac fibroblasts, the ones that make the structure and the endothelial cells. Uh, if we go back to Sarah's uh, analogy, the uh, pipes that are feeding the <laughs> pump, so to speak. Um, and you guys tested all three of them to see, one, if they express a protein called ACE2, which is the receptor that SARS-CoV-2 uses to sneak into the cell. Um, and then two, to see uh, what happens when you expose these cells to the virus. So um, Juan, maybe can you describe um, what your results were? Uh, what happens to each of these cells when they're exposed to virus? 
Well, so yeah, the the experiment was very simple in principle. All you had to do is to take the cells that we produce from stem cells and you put them together in the same media or in the same yeah, feeding media with the virus and then let them happen. And what we saw was actually quite surprising. And we saw that the virus didn't seem to infect really well or at least not replicate or reproduce very well inside fibroblasts or endothelial cells. And that was surprising because some of the people had reported that endothelial cells actually got infected. But the most striking result and that became the foundation of our study is that cardiomyocytes were very easily infectable by the virus. And we know this um, well, because we saw it, of course, um, but also up to the point where our virology collaborators, who are the actual experts on virus that we work with and the ones that uh, supplied the virus to be put with the cells, they said that these were the cells that were the most easily infectable they had ever worked with. Did you find the ACE2 receptor that, that Robin mentioned in these cardiomyocytes? Like, is that how it was infecting them, or have you guys figured out the method? ACE2 is um, expressing cardiomyocytes. Um, the ACE2 receptor is a normal part of the cardiomyocyte and is, um, you know, I believe it's regulating uh, part of what regulates uh, like um, uh, blood pressure. So um, the cardiac fibroblasts, as far as we were able to tell, did not. And in our, you know, in vitro, our laboratory conditions with IPS derived cells, uh, we weren't able to find it in endothelial cells either. Um, I believe in the actual body, however, endothelial cells do have ACE2, and we have actually seen, this was um, something that happened early on, that um, ACE2, or endothelial cells in, in the body were being infected by SARS-CoV-2. And so, you know, as Juan alluded to earlier, this the virus is able to infect different uh, or more cell types in the body than we were able to to. Uh, observe in the laboratory. There are some limitations to our system. I mean, like, yeah, uh, lung endothelial cells for, uh, like, cultured lung endothelial cells can be infected. Um, intestinal endothelial cells can also be infected. So Juan, Sarah, and Sarah, um, so when you were looking, I was really intrigued because you you looked at all three cell types and you show that cardiomyocytes specifically are getting infected by SARS-CoV-2. But when you look at the cells in the dish, you're actually seeing toxicity to all three cell types, um, which is not just because you're putting something foreign on the cells, but if you put heat inactivated or dead virus essentially on those cells, nothing happens to them. So what do you think is going on? How are these other two cell types that aren't being infected actually receiving some sort of toxic signal. Dr. Bermejo, would you like to answer this one? <laughs> I don't think anyone would like to answer that question. But, um, so yeah, that, that is a very outstanding question. We for sure observe exactly what you described, which is that the virus was toxic even in, in cells where it wasn't able to replicate. Um, so we have different hypotheses on why this might be happening, right? And one of them was that the cells sort of like they undergo, you know, like they recognize that there's something toxic or trying to get in and they immediately mount a response and they're like, okay, we gotta get out of here and 
what the body or the cells within the body tend to do when they recognize something that doesn't look right is that they die. Um, so, so as to prevent the spread, if there was to be any spread. Um, and we sort of strongly su uh, suspect that this is the case. Because as you mentioned, if we boil the virus and then we pour it into the cells, that would not kill them. So it actually had to be a virus trying to do something with them, interacting with them in somehow. Um, but there are, many, uh, there are many different explanations to what could be happening. Another one could be that sometimes when we prepare our cells, there might be other cells that are not exactly what we want them to be. And that those cells are able to recognize the virus and they sort of like signal to the rest. They tell the rest of the cells, hey, listen, there's a virus going rampant here. We need to just die, as I said, because that's what cells in the body do. So, um, yeah, some of the damage that you were seeing to cardiomyocytes is this fragmentation of the myofibrils. Can one of you describe, you know, what this entails, um, why this was so striking, uh, and maybe what the implications are for what's happening to the heart as an organ? So in the heart, we have what we call myofibrils. And so the main purpose of a cardiomyocyte is to pump, and it does that by squeezing inwards in order to push blood throughout your body. And so to do that, it needs some sort of um, method to pull itself tight. And so what it uses are these, um, you might think of them kind of like bungee cords or like long stretched out ropes that you can pull inwards to contract the walls of the cardiomyocyte to make it smaller. And so these uh, cables that um, enable it to compress are called myofibrils. And what we are seeing is that uh, within the myofibril, there are many components that make it up to enable it to pull and contract on its own. Um, a particular part of it, which is called the uh, the sarcomere, which is part of the structure of the of the the cable, um, was very strangely disrupted. Um, we were seeing basically the rope fray and come apart in a very particular orderly pattern. So every you know certain amount of distance or every certain amount of you know. Uh, pieces of the rope will come apart in 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 units, and so what we were seeing is not a kind of widespread fraying and collapse of the structure, but a very orderly uh, disassembly, uh, which we thought was very interesting and was not anything that we had seen before. It was also something that very much alarmed us because this cable is the you know lifeblood of the cardiac uh you know purpose or function and so without them or having them being disrupted in this way and completely unspun means that the cells are no longer able to contract which by you know extending the the correlation is um in the body they would no longer be able to pump and so what really we were seeing is that the machinery that allows it to do its job was being specifically torn apart. I want to understand how the cardiomyocytes and the microfibrils relate to each other. Like, are the microfibrils and the sarcomeres that make them inside of the cell? Or are they holding cells together? They are inside of the cell. So most of the cell is actually comprised of these bundles of, of myofibrils, of, of muscle, basically. 
And so, you know, a cardiac cell is some of the normal, you know, components that a cell needs to live, like the cell DNA and mitochondria that make energy for the cell. But a large part of it is just this contractile muscle um, that forms like a, a huge majority of the space of a cardiomyocyte. So it's a cell, but it's mostly just like a like an assembly of you know muscular fibers that pull together. And the sarcomeres are a specific part of the muscle fiber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the way that the, the fiber works is that they're made of many small units. So a small little sandwich that has this, it's, it's basically a spring that can pull in and pull out, right? And if you line many of these springs together, um, that forms a full myofibril. And in between each spring is um, a structural unit. Um, just to keep it stable and to keep all the pieces in coordination with one another. And that's called a sarcomere. Like if you were trying to connect a bunch of separate springs together and you just like clipped them, (laughs) it's like the clip. (laughs) (laughs) So if you were to like cut those apart, you could see all the springs just fall apart. And then you would have springs, but nothing that let you like make long fibers. So hearing about orderly damage seems weird to me is this our viruses usually so orderly yeah but uh, this is uh, megan you're actually touching on a question that i was going to ask which is do we know how the virus is causing this damage do we know is it targeting a specific protein is it um changing the transcriptional programming inside of the cell you know what is it doing to cause this damage yeah that is a uh... Very, very good question. So here there are two main hypotheses, right? The first one is the virus itself has proteases that can chop things. And one of the hypotheses is one of these proteases actually happens to cut the myofibril of the cardiomyocytes to break the sarcomeres apart and and break them into different pieces. And that's one that we actually strongly uh, suspect is the main culprit for this degradation that we see. The second one is that it could be a very, because of how orderly it is, it could be a very specific response of the cardiomyocyte to the infection by the virus where they disassemble their myofibrils as a way of responding because of whatever reason that we still don't understand, it provides them an advantage or it's simply a sign that they are getting infected. Because cardiomyocytes don't frequently get infected by um, virus and because they're so difficult to observe, the viral infection is very difficult to observe in patients or in cardiac cells in vitro. This is one of the very few examples where people have done this. We don't really know if it's a general virus response or if it's a very specific response for this specific virus. That being said, we did try putting other coronavirus family viruses along with our cardiomyocytes, and they did not induce the same type of fragmentation. So we think there's something specific to this, either because the infection is more aggressive in general, or because, as we mentioned earlier, the virus has a protein that's chopping the myofibril, probably non-intentionally. One, you said in your first hypothesis that a protease, like a, a cutting protein, is doing this damage. Do you think that that protease is in the virus or do you think that the virus is taking over the cell and making 
the cardiomyocyte cells make that protease? Right. So, yeah, it's a very good question. Both of these hypotheses are possible, but we are actually leaning more towards the first one. And that goes more into how the virus itself works. So I don't know how deep we want to go into that. But basically, the virus, when it infects a cell, it, it makes itself full, like all the different pieces that will, that will form the virus are, are made full, but they're all together. And the virus relies on using its own protease to chop the different pieces of the virus so they can be assembled in the cell as a factory. So we know that the virus is heavily reliant on protease activity, and that is why we think that a side effect of that protease activity is that the, the myofibrils are getting cut. Also, we sort of like know the specific region or the specific like shape that that protease recognizes, and we know that there's an identical one or a very close very closely related one in the myofibrils, almost by accident, we don't think it is that, by design. Sometimes uh, things aren't on purpose, they're just a consequence, like the protease is like, ah, you look like the thing I'm supposed to cut, <laughs> I'm just going to cut you. And then it's like, oh, that was bad, now I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, that's so weird to me that just by happenstance, by accident, this virus is causing so much damage to heart cells that it's not even helping itself. Right. Well, you know, and a lot of times we attribute, we personify viruses or we give, you know, viruses intention uh, because that's as humans, how we are. Um, but you, you kind of have to think of it less like the virus is doing things on purpose and more like the virus is doing it, its goal is to make more of itself. And if the consequences, it destroys the cell. It, it's not, um, it's not like it's doing it on purpose or that it, you know, intentionally is trying to save the cell or, or destroy the cell. It's just trying to make more of itself. And something that gives the virus a selective advantage is probably going to make the virus better at infecting, but it, a consequence of it hurting a cell, as long as it doesn't damage the virus's ability to replicate is probably just going to stick around in that virus. So I don't know that damage to cardiac cells would cause enough selective pressure that the virus would get rid of it as a consequence. Right. The virus is going to just move on. Yeah, exactly. And also sort of like the way we think about it is that the, and I think pretty much everyone agrees on this, is that the cardiac damage or heart infection by the virus is more of an accident of the virus being able to reach the heart and the heart cells happening to have the receptor. But, you know, it was, ne it, it was never in favor. Yeah, I mean, the virus is a respiratory virus and it's just that when things get really bad, it gets access to the heart and incidentally, it gets an infection there, right? But it never evolved to actually interact with heart cells at all, as far as we know. How do the results compare when you're looking at the lab experiments, the lab dishes, versus the autopsies that you've viewed or what other doctors are seeing in patients? This is, yeah, this is a really important question and, and one that, you know, there's a lot of focus on when doing any kind of experiment in a dish. 
you're obviously looking at something that is quite different than a heart inside of a human being. It's it's a lot more simplified. But regardless, um, we're still capturing, you know, a lot of the same biology in terms of at the at the cell and, and, and somewhat at the tissue level. And we do see pretty strong similarities in terms of the disruptions that we mentioned um, being kind of striking in the sense that normally you would see, as we were talking about the sarcomere units making up these fibers, they would normally look like kind of almost like ropes running across the cell, long and continuous. And they have what are called striations. So they, they just kind of look like a striped pattern kind of, but it still looks like one continuous fiber. And then what we saw in the dish was that that was what was getting broken up into these little pieces. And in the dish, it was very, um, you know, it was very periodic, similar sizes. We were able to look at them in a very high magnification and kind of get a lot more insight into the structure of them. And then when we looked inside patients and we looked at the same proteins, part of this machinery inside the patients, and we did see that compared to healthy patients, there were breaks in, in these, you know, kind of these fibers, these striations. There were periods where it was dark, where there was some sort of disruption. And it didn't look exactly the same as what we were looking at in, in 2D or in the lab. And a lot of that is due to the fact that there's very different structure. We're looking at a thin layer of cells in the lab versus, you know, a very thick and complex tissue in a person. So it's not going to look exactly the same for a lot of reasons, um, but we do see the fact that there is a, a striking disruption in the organization of this protein that was, um, to us, a strong indicator that what we're seeing in the lab may actually resemble um, some level of a similar disruption that's actually occurring in patients. That was, that was good. Thank you. <laughs> I think uh, one of the big questions is, you know, what does this, you know, say a person has the infection, what are the implications for you know, long-term treatments? Is there a way to um, prevent the damage before it happens? You know, in your paper, you guys show how if you prevent infection, you can actually um, prevent some of the damage that's happening. Um, and you guys showed this by using a bunch of different treatments. So I think it was antibodies as well as um, a few different drugs. Um, yeah, so uh, basically by treating, by pre-treating the cardio, cardio cells, the um, heart cells with drugs that would prevent infection, you could actually save the cells from being damaged. Um, could one of you talk about maybe what your study actually was looking at and, and what the long-term implications might be? So in a dish, there are numerous ways to perhaps um, to prevent uh, infection of cells. Um, these include, as you mentioned, using an antibody to block access of the virus to your cell, in addition to certain um, chemicals and drugs. Uh, such as remdesivir, which was uh, made a lot of press over the last year. Um, it doesn't work well in patients, by the way, um, but it does have um, a good activity in a dish. Although you guys noted that it can also just damage heart cells on its own. It, it's also known to have toxic effects on the heart. 
Um, so there are things that you can do to prevent it in in vitro or in in the lab. However, as you know, we've seen with some of the differences in our results, uh, many of those uh, effects that we see in the lab may not transfer over. Remdesivir works great in a dish, um, but doesn't really have much of an effect in clinic, for example. And so the answer to your question is to prevent cardiac damage, the best thing to do is prevent people from getting the disease. And the method that we know best for doing that, you know, in people is vaccination. Yeah, I, I think this is, you know, a really important point. Um, prevention is the best treatment in this case. So preventing yourself from getting the virus is really the best defense that people have against you know, short-term effects and long-term effects of this virus. And, you know, that prevention effort includes vaccination as well as things like wearing a mask and social distancing and all the things that we've been doing, you know, for the last year is to try and prevent you from getting the virus in the first place. And I think that's um, kind of a really important point to just kind of hit home as we're, you know, entering what is a, a full year of, you know, kind of being in a pandemic? So I saw that this paper was pre-printed, which uh, I take to mean it was released before it was peer-reviewed for a journal. Um, how was that decision made to pre-print? And were you guys directly involved in that? And I do want to clarify also that... Um, the preprint came out in the fall, but the article has been published um, after peer review uh, just this last month in, in March. Yeah, and I guess when you put it the way Robin just described it, yeah, it's it's pretty obvious why we decided to preprint it. Well, first of all, answering your your question more directly, yes, we were involved in the in the decision making of you know publishing it as a preprint that wasn't reviewed in a peer review paper first, uh, peer review journal first. Um, but the thing is, that was not even that much of a dilemma, or it wasn't controversial at all. In COVID times, particularly, everyone was dropping their preprints. The main reason being that the scientific community was very interested in sharing their data as soon as possible, because you, wanted, you want other people to be building on top of what you are doing. We knew that there were other people interested in the heart uh, implications of COVID-19 and we wanted them to know what we had seen and that they could use this model to make their own studies. And we even had some doctors that, you know, read their, read the manuscript or that the preprint manuscript or that attended some of our Zoom talks and that asked us questions. And I think Robin made it very clear how this ends up working. And it's just, if we hadn't, you know, we were able to share with the community and basically with everyone that wanted to read it our studies by July, I think. Mm, I think it was July or even before that, or maybe August. So August in the summer. But the peer-reviewed paper that is actually quite similar to the one that we preprinted, it took six or seven more months to be published. We actually spent more time between the initial deposition and the publication than we actually spent during the initial workup of the paper. Um, it was the majority of our time from last March to now was just waiting for peer review. Um, I think another point to, to what to, to Juan though is that 
um, there normally the preprint process is one where um, you put forward ideas into the scientific community and people can engage and you know evaluate it for themselves and so it encourages a lot of open discussion which we were very much uh, fans of the other thing is during covid especially there were a lot of eyes on bioarchive the preprint server um, and a lot of you know reports being taken from there and, and published as you know conclusive fact and we were aware of this you know in the process and so we spent a lot of time verifying our data and having it internally uh, among collaborators or doctors from other institutions um, having our conclusions and our work validated because we knew that when we put this out you know people would uh, pay attention because everyone was paying attention at this time and so we wanted to be absolutely certain that we were willing to stand behind everything we were putting out there and put nothing that you know we were hesitant or or uh, apprehensive about about sharing is preprinting a, a typical thing to get information out there and share um, or is this unique to coronavirus and COVID-19? Preprinting has been around for a while now. Um, I would say that I think Sarah said it really well is that before the pandemic it was often used to put maybe not quite complete ideas together. Uh, you wanna get feedback from the community. You wanna start a discussion. Um, it's It was sometimes used as um, a rough draft of your paper. Um, it more and more has been used where you've submitted your article um, to a peer reviewed journal and you just wanna get the data out there kind of as it's being reviewed. Um, so you want people to be able to see what you're doing. I think during the pandemic, it, more and more, it was used to get information out quickly. So, um, and like Sarah said, you kind of wanted it to be things that you stood behind and less of a rough draft. Um, so less of something that you were um, trying to, you know, you do want to get feedback on, but more something that you would stand behind and that just needed to go through peer review. Um, I don't know, would you guys add anything to that? Do you think that peer review, like in my mind, I think peer review has been, or not peer review. I think that the preprints are used a little differently now than they used to be before the pandemic. Absolutely, I would totally agree with that. The sense of urgency that um, COVID brought for sharing scientific um, discoveries really made preprints uh, a valid a valid um, outlet for sharing your your science, and you know it, it's sort of like the proof of fire. I, I, I we come to believe it's sort of like the proof of fire. It had to stand because now there's very few people that will actually argue that preprint is a valid form for reputable um, scientists and real scientists and institutions and science institutions to share their knowledge and their discoveries, and it also relieves a bit of the pressure that exists with the whole like you know I don't know how to put it corporate publishing um, world. So, I mean, I guess the main argument against is that you're not getting a proper review of your paper. Well, I guess one of the main, one of the main um, yeah, critiques that people, people might think of when they think about preprints is that the articles are not getting reviewed by scientists. But what happens is that the preprint 
um, sort of like phenomenon is tightly linked to the whole like social media, Twitter, and many other, you know, places like outlets where people can share information. Our paper was getting effectively reviewed by scientists on Twitter all the time. And that was not so nice sometimes. Um, and nice some other times, yeah. Peer review is still very important. I think it has its place, especially because um, an official person is putting kind of their like stamp of approval on it. And they are basically going through your work and trying to poke holes in what you've done. And they're making sure that it stands up to kind of a, a scientific rigor that you would want. Um, but yeah, there is something to be said about kind of, um, I guess the the social media version of <laughs> peer review, if that makes sense. Um, it, it's a mixed bag, I would say. <laughs> but so is peer review sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That being said, I think one, one thing that's probably important to make a distinction on is for the, for the, you know, I can understand is, for example, media that is not necessarily well-versed in critically analyzing papers, they decide to only trust peer-reviewed papers, right? Because when something is peer-reviewed, it's like, as Robin said, the scientific community has actually put their seal of approval there. And I feel like, it, you know, for the general public, it makes sense to lean to only trusting or reading or, you know, putting on, on the media the articles that are already past peer review. And during COVID, we also sort of suffered from a lack of that in the, not, not for our, for our study, but there were some other studies that were of not necessarily great quality, um, that were posted as preprints and the media were picking up on and the public were picking up on. And it became a disaster because they were never actually peer reviewed eventually just because of the poor science and I guess hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine was an example for that um, but there are many others yeah I think that's a really good point that um, peer review is especially important I think in a day and age and a time where um, the media has also been changed and where, um, especially in the internet age, where stories can be picked up or anyone can write their, you know, quote unquote, expert opinion without, you know, defining what they mean by being an expert. Um, and, you know, when you put something, when you put scientists behind something, you're, you're giving it a air of um, expertise that, uh, you know, sometimes people, especially in the news media, if they take it to say like, oh, this scientist published a study, it makes it sound as if it's, um, you know, fact. Whereas, yeah, without peer review, you know, maybe it hasn't gone through all the rigorous standards that it would need before, you know, scientists can come and say like, oh, this is definitely scientific consensus. So have you heard um, or seen other scientists take and build on your research since it's been pre-printed and now peer-reviewed? Actually, there's a, um, there's a very simple metric for that, which is to see how many times your paper has been cited by other people. 
And only recently, I don't know if Sarah, I don't know Sarah, if you noticed that, but only recently I checked and actually our paper has been signed, our preprint has been signed like 30 something times already. It's like 30 times, yeah. Which means people have had enough time in like whatever, six, seven months, eight months to, you know, build upon it and either comment on it because it could be just a paper that comments on it or, you know, be inspired by it. So I was reading the stat article that Robin shared with me, and I specifically typed this out because it struck me that the article seemed a little dismissive of your paper in that when it talked about autopsy results and how the lab results that you saw um, compared to autopsy results, the autopsy results showed, quote, hints of a disorderly rearrangement, end quote. And that seems to really downplay what's seen in autopsy results. What I don't know if you guys follow media coverage of your paper. I think you're actually quoting one of the other scientists that read it, right? Like he was saying oh, it hasn't okay. been peer reviewed yet. So even though there's hints of it, it's made like we want to wait until the peer review. I, I think that was that the article I sent you was from before it was peer reviewed even. Um, Okay. I'm going to, but I, I'm, yeah, like now I'm trying to like find it to see like where it came from. Oh yeah. No, Conklin. Or is it a quote from Bruce? Yes. It's a quote from Conklin. Who is actually one of the authors. Oh, okay. So So it was even Bruce that said it. Oh, that's funny. Oh, okay. But that being said, yeah. Yeah. But that, this being said, and I'm sure Sarah will agree with me and can put it more eloquently, but personally, I was, I'm always very relieved when I read comments that are sort of downplaying the impact of our paper. <laughs> because the last thing you want is that they overplay, you know, the consequences of your paper. And that's your biggest fear when a journalist gets hold of your paper or your preprint. So when someone says something that you could think is underwhelming or dismissive, that's good science. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's, the, that's the way I feel about it. Relief. <laughs> yeah. I think a good scientist will always be happy that their work is being downplayed rather than being over-sensationalized. Okay. And then when it comes to COVID, it's even more, you know, like because you have to worry not only about people overplaying your findings and all the other scientists thinking it sounds stupid, but, you know, you have to think about like patients and the family of patients. It's really tough when you're doing biomedical research and you're trying to say, you know, you're trying to represent your work and you're trying to talk to people and tell them like, okay, we think this is promising. We think this is, you know, going to be really useful for the community and we think this is great. And then, yeah, with tempering that of expectations for, you know, patients or people who have caught the, you know, caught the virus or are in hospitals and you're like, this isn't like a, a miracle. It's, not gonna fix things right now it's hopefully gonna help people later but you know trying to temper people's expectations or even tell them like look we don't know what's actually happening yet it's not to say that you're gonna get heart failure because you got the virus right like yeah i think one mentioned that very well that you know we have to there's a balance between you know portraying an accurate and real you know, picture of what we're seeing, but also, you know, being very clear that 
this is only a proportion of people who are very gravely ill that we're, we're looking at, right? So, you know, we want to impress the importance of, of studying this, but also, you know, not panic folks either. Thank you for joining us today in our second updates in SARS-CoV-2 episode. We hope you join us next time for more conversations on biology research. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who is doing their part during the pandemic to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the virus. Thank you to everyone who is doing your part in remembering to wash your hands, in keeping up the social distancing, and in wearing your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for sticking with and listening to health experts. We hope that our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our role as a scientist, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But in case we didn't do this, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or if you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to respond. And if you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Nevin Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. And we want to thank UCSF and the Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. I would like to thank our guests, Juan, Sarah, and Sarah, for helping discuss this paper. And especially thanks to our guest and friend and all-around awesome human being, Megan. Thank you to Alexa Rokort and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. Oh, wait. Really stupid question that you'll probably cut. Because I don't really... Besides the four cans video, Robin, that I say, you know, I don't really understand how the mRNA vaccines are different from regular vaccines. Are the vaccines targeting these certain proteases? Like, will it, will it help? Right. Um, so the vaccine itself, uh, and all the vaccines are trying to do something similar, are trying to uh, teach your immune system to recognize the virus. So the different types of vaccines are actually just different ways of delivering those instructions to your immune system. So the mRNA vaccine is using mRNA. Uh, which basically gets inside of your cells and your cells produce um, the viral protein, the viral antigen, and then uh, present it to your immune system and your immune system goes, oh my gosh, what is this? Like the 4CAN video <laughs> and says like, okay, I need to get rid of this. It's foreign and I'll go, I'll get rid of it. And then when it sees it again, it's like, hey, what the hell? Like I just, didn't I just get rid of you? So then it mounts a stronger immune response and it remembers like, okay, this is bad. I need to get rid of it. So it's, it's teaching your immune system what the virus looks like before you even get the virus. Yeah.